Man, that's good. That's good. I like that. Um, so we're exploring this. The last several weeks, we've been just really drilling down on this question, who is Jesus? Um, and then in three weeks from now, we're going to be celebrating the most important event in human history, his resurrection. Uh, we are celebrating Easter Sunday, uh, April 5th. And three weeks from now, we're launching a new series called Dynamite. It's going to be powerful. Uh, it's, going to, it's going to be explosive, okay? Uh, living your life with power. So, you guys, invite your friends, invite your family. Um, the sun, Easter Sunday, all the studies will show you, is that one Sunday where when you say, hey, do you want to go to church with me? Everybody says, um, yeah, sure, right? It's Easter, so they're going to come. There's, um, you guys received invites in your little bulletins there. Please feel free to hand these out to your friends and your family. If you need more of these, let us know. Um, and we're going to have an awesome Easter Sunday, big Easter egg hunt and all that stuff. Um, but in, until we get there, we're going to continue to explore this question, who is Jesus? And here's the thing about Jesus' identity, right? There are other characters in history. You think of Alexander the Great, Herod Antipas, Julius Caesar. Nobody's debating, like, who is Julius Caesar, right? Like, their, their identity is relatively well-established. Uh, we, you know, there are there's some controversy maybe around the peripheral details, right? But, but Jesus is this one person in history that for 20 centuries, millions of people have debated vigorously, passionately, emotionally, who is he? Who is he? Now, I grew up in church, right? And, and I, some of you probably grew up in some, some variation of, of church. And when I grew up in church, I had developed this this view of Jesus and this view of Christianity that was all about sort of adherence to the rules, right? I, I, I sort of call it the circles of acceptability, right? Circles of acceptability. That's what living a Christian life is all about. Circles of acceptability for me growing up looks something like this. See if this, see if this resonates with you. Christianity, you got at the very core, you got the stuff that you're supposed to do, right? Got to pray, got to read my Bible, Got to go to Bible study. Got to go to choir practice. Got to go to youth, you know, class. Got to, you know, do a little fasting. Got to evangelize. These are the things I got to do, right? Then there's this stuff right outside of there. I don't know if this, if, if, if this you know, if, if you, if you uh, recognize this, but this was me. Then there's this stuff that's the okay to do, right? It's like, okay, you can hang out with your friends. You can talk on the phone. You can ride your bike. You go get some pizza. That's all, like, spiritually neutral, right? It's like, it's not, not good. It's not bad. It's just chill, whatever, it's fine. Then you get into like questionable, right? This is the stuff where it's like, mm, you know, this would sort of usually involve maybe a member of the opposite sex. Like, um, am I allowed to do that? Or like, whoa. And, or maybe like something that you watch on television or a movie, you're like, this is like kind of on the edge, not totally, you know, um, you know, or, or like songs, like maybe a certain song you listen to and you, I don't know, if, I don't know if you guys remember this, but I remember there was this whole craze that went through, uh, Christian, that went through churches where they were like, people would come and they would say, you need to watch out about the music because there's backmasking. If you play it backwards, then there's like demonic messages in the songs and you guys better watch out because you'll be worshiping Satan and getting pentagrams tattooed on your shoulder. You know, I don't know if you guys, but that was, that, I, I remember that growing up, right? And then they would come and they would play the song backward and they'd be like, you know, and I'd be like, did you hear him? He said, Satan is Lord. That's what is totally what he said. And, um, 
So you had to be careful, you know. And then you play the country song back. You know, you get your wife back, you get your truck back, you get your dog back, all that stuff. So, so you got to be careful with that. Um, but so there was, the, there was the questionable stuff, right? And then there's the highly suspect stuff. Like this is, this is like, um, I'll do this when there's no church people around, right? Like I'll do this when I'm totally alone and like I can still kind of justify it. Like there's no, you know, exact commandment that says do not do that, right? I mean, there's commandments that kind of touch on it, but the highly, highly suspect, this is stuff where you had to learn, like, I can do this around certain people, but I can't do this around other people. And if the people that I can't do it around, somehow my compartment collapses and they somehow spill over into the land of people that I hang out with when I'm not being a church guy, then we're in trouble, right? Yeah. And then there was the, for me, there was the unthinkable. This is like, dude, if you do that, you will immediately fry. You will just poof, you're dead. You're going to just burn right now. Um, and, and I got pretty good at navigating this religious worldview for myself as a preteen and as a teenager, right? I mean, sometimes things wouldn't work out. Sometimes there would be a breach in the compartments, you know? Like, I, I remember one time, my mom is here today, so I have to be real careful about admissions and stuff like that. But I remember one, one Sunday, it was a Sunday, uh, Sunday night. We had church on Sunday morning, Sunday night, uh, Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday morning, and so forth. So, um... <laughs> So this was a Sunday night. This was a Sunday night after church. You know, I had my suit, my tie, my wingtips, the full, I was, you know, the, the tie, the tie bar. You remember those? I had it totally dialed in. But then afterwards, I would slip out of the side door of the church. And a couple of my buddies would, from high school that were not church guys would pick me up. And then we would just, we would roll. We would just like take off. And one Sunday night, there was a party and we were going to go to this party. And they said, we're coming, going to a party. I said, okay, cool. So we, we get in the car and we start to roll to the party. Now, here's the problem. The party was about like eight blocks from the church. And I hadn't calculated that into my deviance at that point. So anyway, we go to this party. Somebody's, somebody's parent was out of town. And so there's this big party and there's a, there was a pool in the backyard. And so that just increases the party level unbelievably. And so pretty soon there's, you know, 100 teenagers jumping in the pool, swinging from the chandelier, just tearing it up, right? And with that many kids, you know, in the neighborhood, somebody called the police. And here comes the police. Whoop, 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 whoop. Right. Surround the house. Lights flashing. Right. They come in and they're like, all right, we want everybody out of here. Everybody out of the party. So we're like, OK, you know, nothing, nothing really bad had happened. So they're telling us all to leave. And I remember this very vividly. I had uh, I had had my suit on because I was at church. So but I can't swim with your suit on. So I had my I'm 16 years old. I had my boxer shorts on. I've been swimming in the pool. I got my suit and my tie and my shoes and my tie bar and everything under my, under my, under my arm. And, and this is right over there in Bridgeton, uh, right off of Mark Twain Lane, mom, you, you know where I'm at. And, um, and I, and I come walking out of the party. I'm soaking wet. I got my boxer shorts on. I'm barefoot. I got my church. I got my suit under my arm and I'm just kind of walking along and this car drives by and I hear, hi Brent. And I'm like, huh? Oh, it was brother and sister Rodenbush. They were like a, a very established family in the church. And then in the back seat was two missionaries that had preached that night at the church. And I'm like, oh, hey, how's it going? 
And I know they're like, yeah, this is our pastor's son. Um, right? So sometimes the, 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 the circles of acceptability sort of crash. Then you go to camp meeting, and then you run straight to the supposed to do. Then you start judging everybody that's not doing that, right? So this is like a cycle of religiosity that if, I don't care if you're Catholic, Baptist, Methodist, Lutheran, Presbyterian, Buddhist, Hindu, you probably have some variation of this in your mind, right? And this is what we think of when we think of religion. And maybe for some of you today, you're like, you know what? I, I'm fed, I'm, I like got fed up with the church stuff a long time ago. I can't do the performance thing, right? Because it's empty for me. There's nothing there. Once you get good at performing it, you suddenly realize, this is totally phony. Like, this is a charade that I'm pulling off relatively successfully. Not always. You know, there's always the, the rodent bushes may drive by and break, you know, break the cycle. But, but in general, I can handle this religiousness okay. And then you go, but you know what? It doesn't mean anything to me. There's nothing there for me. And I think a lot of people, especially 19, 20, 21, and get to college, you start to look at this view of Christianity, and you start to go, you know what? I'm, I'm out. Like, there's nothing here. I'm checking out, right? Here's the good news for you today. This is not the paradigm that Jesus espoused and preached and taught. This is not it. Jesus did not sit and draw circles of acceptability and say, you are in if you cross this line, you're out if you, cross, if you don't cross this line. That is not the approach he gave. In fact, if you look throughout the scriptures, if you scratch out from your mind all of your own you know, uh, your own views and your, and your preconceptions about the faith, you see Jesus throughout the Gospels using a relational model to examine what it means to follow him. So he would, he would make comparisons like a father and a child, right? And a father's duty is not just to stand at a remote distance and say, do this and I love you. Don't do this and you're out. You'll fry. No, a father says, come here, let me show you how to do this. Come here, follow me. Let me just show you something. Come here, son. And, 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 and a father brings his children around him, and his children come out of him. And, his fa- and a father has love for the child, right? Whether the child is, wherever the child is on their spectrum, wherever they're at on their journey, the father's going he's gonna, to he's gonna bring them along with him, right? But he's not going to throw them out if they don't just step up to the line, right? Then he uses a, a vine and a branch. And in vine and a branch image, you know, we don't do a lot of the, the growing the vines here, but in, 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 in Israel, you know, they would have these vines on the trestles, and then the branches would come out of the vine, and off the branches would be these grapes. And so Jesus would say, I'm the vine, you're the branch. So the nourishment and strength and productivity and fruitfulness that you have, I'm just going to give that to you. And there's this deep interactivity. And when the vine grows this way, the branch goes this way. The branch follows the vine. Then, then he would talk about a shepherd and a sheep. And we don't have, you know, we don't do a lot of livestock and agriculture around here in St. Louis. So this is kind of a bad example. All right. But I'm so sorry. I am so sorry, but I just couldn't, I couldn't, I just couldn't stop myself. Um, but, but Jesus was saying, look, you know, sheep, they just follow the shepherd. When they, when I, when I call, when I say, Hey sheep, come here, they, they know they follow me, right? They know my voice and they come and they follow me. And then in the, in, you know, in the epistles it's described as Jesus is the head and we're the body and the body just follows the head. So you get this image of Jesus, not as some sort of dictator drawing circles in the sand, but as this leader who's calling you to follow him. A leader who's saying, look, come, 
Come and follow me. So what is the paradigm that Jesus has for us? Jesus has the paradigm of inviting us to follow. Jesus invites us to follow, right? That's what his, that's what his whole approach is. It's, it's, a, it's an approach where he's in relationship with you, and he invites you no matter where you're at, no matter where you've been, no matter your background. In fact, the proposition that I would, I would propose to you today is this. You know, as we're examining who is Jesus, we believe he's the son of God. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's, you know, all of that, right? Today, I want to explore one, one component of him, one aspect of, that, of him, and that's this. Jesus is the greatest spiritual leader of all time, and he is inviting you, no matter where you're at, no matter your background, your beliefs, your conduct, your behavior, your you know, proclivities, whatever, wherever you're coming from, he's inviting you to follow him. And he's inviting you to follow him, watch this, from wherever you are right now. He's not saying, I'm going to get ahead of myself. He's not saying, do this, then you can follow me. He's saying, you, 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 right where you are, come and follow me. Jesus invites us to follow. What does that mean, right? So we're going to explore this. Um, and we're going to sort of look into the anatomy of what it means to follow. And we're going to use as a template uh, one of the famous passages where Jesus invited someone very unexpected to follow him. So if you look in the book of Matthew, chapter 9, verse 9, it says, As Jesus went from there, he had been in his hometown. He had been preaching and teaching and doing, performing miracles. And he, as he went from there, he saw a man named Matthew. And uh, Matthew was sitting at the tax collector's booth. Now, let me just give you a a real quick thumbnail historical piece on this. Some of you guys know this. But this this passage, as we read it, is just like, it's just a normal, it's a normal statement, right? But in the first century, if you read this, you would immediately, your ears would perk up like, okay, what's he going to do, right? Because here's the status of a tax collector in first century Israel. Here's the way it worked. Rome was an oppressive force. That, that governed Israel. So you got the Romans and you got the Jews. The Romans have the money, they have the power, they have the strength, they have the military force. They have come and imposed their will upon the Jews, okay? And they govern the Jewish region. But to govern the Jewish, re- the Jewish region, they would get certain individuals, certain Jews that were part of the community there, and they would say, hey, look, we're going to pay you an exorbitant amount of money if you will collect the taxes from your people and give that money to us. Now, here's the, here's the deal. You have to give us a certain amount, but you can charge whatever you want. So whatever amount you make over and above what you give to us, you keep. And there were a certain number of Jews who would say, that sounds like a great deal. And so they would then impose and, 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 and extort money from their brothers and sisters, their own people, to give that money to the Romans. And so, and they would impose all sorts of taxes. You could have, you could have a, a, a poll tax. You could have a um, uh, wine tax. You could have livestock tax, property tax, income tax. They could walk up to you on the street and say, what do you got in your bag? Okay, you've got some fruit. Okay, I'm going to impose a fruit tax on you. They could just impose taxes, and they had all the power of the Roman military behind them to enforce this extortion, right? So these guys, we don't have the equivalent in the United States. I was, I've 
you know, several days this week, I'm like, what's the modern equivalent of a first century Jewish tax collector? There is none. These guys were like scum. These guys were like the, the lowest of the low. These guys were jerks. These guys had, were traitors, right? They're, 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 they're stool pigeons, right? They're just like, you know what? I, you know, we don't care about our people. We don't have any, we don't have any integrity, any character. We're just out to make money, and we're going to extort as much money as we can. So everybody hated, everybody hated these tax collectors. So when you read this sentence and you go, Jesus went on from there. He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. You're like, uh-oh, what's he going to do? Because there's a lot, of thing that, a lot of things that Jesus could have said to Matthew, the tax collector. He could have walked up to him and he could have said, you know what? I hope you're really proud of yourself, right? He could have said, you know what? You're scum. You're a low life. You're the worst of the worst. And, and if he had said that, he would have been so celebrated. People would have been like, yeah, Jesus, you tell them, right? Because this guy works for the Romans, and we hate the Romans. We want to, over, we want to throw them off of our backs. He would have been a huge celebrity if he had come out and just pointed the finger at Matthew and condemned him. And by the way, Jesus had already gotten a few followers. He had, he had Andrew, he had Peter, he had James, he had John. He had a few guys that were already with him, and these guys that were with him, they did not like the Romans, They did not like the Romans at all. So when Jesus walks up to Matthew, who is working for the Romans, they're in their mind going, okay, good. Jesus is going to straighten this guy out, right? Look what Jesus said. He said, Matthew, follow me. Follow me. That That blew everybody's minds. That doesn't fit in the paradigm for anybody. Because of all the things that Jesus said, could have said, he says, you know what? I want you to be with me. Now, when a rabbi in first century Israel asked somebody to follow them, he's not just saying, follow me for a minute so that, you know, you can see where I'm going or like follow. He's saying, I, I want to invite you to be a part of my crew. I want to invite you to be a part of my posse. I want to invite you to be a part of my team. That's what it means when it was a formal invitation. I want you to identify yourself with me. Now, Jesus' disciples are going, wait, 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 right? You remember in high school when, like, you, you know, you you had to be careful who, who you hung out with? Because, like, if you hung out with a certain person, then your reputation would go up. Your stock at the high school would go up. But if you hung out with somebody else, it's like, oh, man, people are going to not like me if I hang out, right? And, and Jesus' disciples, that's what they're doing. They're like, wait a second. You know, the four of us, we're good. We're fishermen. We're common folks. We don't like the Romans. You know, we're all good. But you're going to invite this guy? Like, that's not cool. Uh, Andy Stanley, pastor of North Point Church in, in Texas, he does really, really incredible work on, on the, what it means for Jesus to be our leader and what it means for us to follow. And, and here's what he says. Uh, and, I'm, and, I'm, and I'm just going to steal as much as, uh, of his stuff as I can for this sermon because he's just so brilliant at it. But here's what he says. He says that Jesus extended an invitation to follow to every kind of person imaginable, to rich people, to poor people, to spiritual people, to unspiritual people, to religious people, to irreligious people, to all kinds of people. Jesus said, follow me. He said, become part of my posse, become part of my group, begin to identify with me, and I will begin to identify with you. So when Jesus says, follow me, it's not just come and follow me for a minute. It's like we are together. We are a team. Three things I wanted to show you real quick about his invitation to follow. Number one, it was unsolicited. 
Matthew was not saying, boy, I sure wish Jesus would come and ask me to follow him today. He was not saying that. He was sitting there collecting his taxes, being corrupt. Some of you today may be here because somebody dragged you here, your wife or girlfriend or, you know, friend or mom or boyfriend or whatever. Somebody got you here and you're like, all right, you know, I'm here. I'm just checking it out. Uh, I'm not so sure about all this. You know, it seems a little hokey, but, you know, I'm going to hang, right? Jesus can find you right there. In fact, Jesus is in pursuit of you, whether you're in pursuit of him or not. He's coming after you, whether you're coming after him or not. And that's the beauty of when you finally succumb and you start to follow him, you realize, oh my gosh, he's been here the whole time. He's been tracking with me the whole time. He's seen me through the dark times. He's seen me through the hard times. And he's here with me right now. So it was unsolicited. Jesus came after him. Number two, it was unequivocal, meaning it was extremely direct. He wasn't saying, you know, Matthew, you may want to consider possibly following me or some other rabbi. He said, I want you to follow me. It was direct. You know, it was imperative. He said, come now, follow me. No equivocation about it, right? And here's the part that I love the most. It was unconditional. He didn't say, Matthew, hey, by the way, if you stop being a tax collector and you stop being such a jerk, you can be part of my crew, right? He didn't say, if you clean up and stop being a sinner, you can be part of my crew. He didn't even say, hey, man, if you believe that I am the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, then you can follow me. He gave an invitation without any conditions and said, I want you to follow me. Just right where you are, come and follow me. Let me ask you this, church. How amazing would it be if we are a church that says to people, come and follow Christ from wherever you are. From wherever you are, meaning whatever you believe at this time, start to come and follow him. Whatever you think at this time, start to come and follow him. Whatever you're doing at this time, start to come and follow him. Not get all that straightened up and then follow him. Because Matthew was, Matthew was corrupt. Matthew was not a believer. Matthew was just a guy doing a bad thing. And Jesus said, follow me. The question for us. The question for you, the question for me, am I following? Am I following Jesus? So the question then, where is Jesus going to take Matthew, right? Surely he's going to take him to the temple. They're going to do a cleansing ceremony. They're going to get him straightened up. Or maybe he's going to go to a mountaintop. He's going to shave his head. He's going to put on a white robe. He's going to repent. He's going to start praying and fasting. Maybe he's going to go to the bank, withdraw all the money that he has you know, stolen from his people, and give it back. Right. So surely Jesus is going to take him to one of these kinds of places and get him straightened out. Right? You know that's not right, right? Next scene. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house. So Jesus says, follow me. Follow me where? Follow you where? Let's go to your house. Let's go hang out where you are. I'm just going to come find you where you're at. And I'm going to start to spend some time with you there. Right? What if we're a church that says, hey, we're going to meet you where you're at. We're just going to start to find you where you're at. Now, imagine the disciples. They were like, like us, right? They're like, well, wait a second. It's one thing to say, well, you know, follow me. Okay, that was bad, right? And now, but you're going to take him somewhere good, right? We're not going to, but no, we're going to go to his house. And we're going to hang And the disciples are probably thinking, you know, all right, so hopefully the way this is going to work 
is, you know, nobody will notice. We come in, we have a quick bite, pray for him, cast the devil out of him, and then we're out, right? And then we're out, right? Totally undercover, nothing, you know, it's a very, very subtle, very quiet, very in out, very stealth, right? That didn't, that, that's not what happened. Many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. You know what this means? This means Matthew threw a party, like a party. And all three synoptic gospels recount this. And every single one of them say, yeah, and, it, and a lot of people came. So it wasn't just like we're in and then we're out. It's a ton of people coming and they're all sinners and they're all tax collectors. It's like the worst of the word because who else are they going to hang with? Everybody else despises them. Nobody had ever asked any, any of these guys to follow them before. Everybody was avoiding them like the plague. We're not going to hang around with these kind of people. So who do they hang around? They hang around with each other. And this is a group of people that had given up on the temple. They had given up on temple worship. They weren't making sacrifices. They weren't praying. They weren't trying anymore. They were like, we are out. We, we're, we're going to hell, and we all know it, and we're all going to hang. We'll all know each other there. We'll have our own bench. We'll play bingo. You know, it's like we're just going to do our thing, and we're all hanging out together. We had all, these, are, these are folks that had checked out, right? And it was a party, and they're all coming together. Um, I'm going to explain what the house was like in just a minute. But let me just say this to you, right? If you are here today and you say, you know what, I am, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm an agnostic. I'm not sure what I believe about Jesus. I've read a lot of stuff, and that's okay. We want you here, right? We want you. You're invited to the party, right? You're invited to the party. If you say, I'm an atheist. I don't even believe in God. I'm, I came, you know, just strictly out of curiosity. We want you here, Right? If, you're, if you come today and you say, you know what, I'm gay. Am I allowed to come into this church? Yeah, we, we want you here. We want you here. If you say, I, don't, I think this is a fairy tale. I don't believe in any of this stuff, right? That's okay. Just come and hang out with us. Just come, hang out with us for a little bit, right? If you say, you know what, I, don't, I, I have a ton of questions about this. In fact, I'm, I, my, my suspicion is that this is just this is a bunch of bunk. We want you here. We want you to be here with us. You're invited to the party, right? If you come today, you say, I'm a Cubs fan. There's a lot of good churches in St. Louis. I mean, lots of good churches right down the road. So they accept people like you. Um, Here's the thing. When you have this sort of radical invitation to everybody, wherever they're at, at that point, at that time to come, there's going to be controversy. Whenever Jesus leads, controversy follows. You read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, full of controversy. And the controversy was because there was a group of religious followers that hung out everywhere that Jesus went. They had notebooks, and they would, like, follow him, and they would be writing stuff down. Hmm, interesting. Interesting. Huh, did you hear what he said? Did you see his disciples didn't wash their hands before they ate? Did you notice that? I'm going to write that down. Right? So they were always tracking him, always trying to get the little details, always trying to figure it out. Right? So they're at this party. First century house is very open. You got an open courtyard. Matthew was rich, so he had a big house. Open courtyard. You got these terraces on the roof where you have dinner, and that's where you have your parties. And so people could be all out on the street. And they, you know, you're communicating with them. They know you're there. You know, it's not like you're all boxed in, right? And they're looking through the windows. There are no windows. I mean, they're open. It's all open. And so the Pharisees had been following Jesus everywhere he went. If you read the first several uh, chapters of Matthew, you see they've just been following him. So they follow him to the party, right? 
And they're, they're looking there at the party, and they're just looking at And they know. They know. They're like, yeah, that's a tax collector, publican, sinner, reprobate, adulterer. You know, it's like these are, they, they know all this because they keep track. They keep record. So they're looking at all these guys. And now, apparently, some of the disciples were, like, in the house, and some of them were kind of just around the house because the Pharisees are outside of this party. They're outside. They're not invited in. And the Scripture says that when uh, the Pharisees saw this, that Jesus was hanging out with these guys, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why is he doing this, right? And this is a fair question because Jesus is a rabbi. Jesus is a spiritual leader, right? And so they're saying, we're spiritual leaders, and we don't hang out with these people. In fact, we avoid these people. You know, until these people straighten up and come to us, uh, we're not going to be around them. So why is your guy, why is your teacher hanging around with them? And this is what I love, because Jesus is in the house at the dinner. But apparently, the way I imagine it, you know, these guys are out on the street, and he's probably up on, on the roof, like on the first floor. And he can hear them. Like, it's, you know, it's like from here to there, right? So he can hear them. He can hear this debate of his disciples. And I love how Jesus does this, because he kind of leans over. I see him leaning over the balcony, and this is what he says. It says, on hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, guys. It's the sick. Right? Here's the crazy thing about this statement. Who in that environment does not get offended by this statement? Like they all do. If you're out on the street, you can tell that he's essentially mocking you. And he's saying, you guys think you're so great. That's why you're not invited to the party. We don't want people who think that they're so healthy. I'm not here for you. Because you don't think you're, there's anything wrong with you. I'm here for these sick people, right, sick people? You know, you know I imagine Matthew's friends are all sitting there like, uh, wait, let's see, do we cheer now or do we like, are we offended? Like, but here's the thing. They know they're, ma- I mean, I see Jesus looking at him going like, and they're going, are you talking about us being sick? And Jesus is like, Dude, you guys are tax collectors. Yeah, you're totally screwed up. You're totally sick. You guys are reprobates. You know that, right? I love you. I mean, I'm just chilling with you. But you guys know you're messed up. And I see them being like, that's offensive, but that's absolutely correct. Thank you. High five. Bring some bacon. Let's go. So that's the difference. And that's, that's the difference with Jesus, right? He's hanging out with these guys. And the only reason he's hanging out with these guys is because they know they're sick. They know they're broken. They know that they are messed up. They know that their life is screwed up. And Jesus is saying, yeah, I know that too. I'm not saying it's not. I'm not saying your life is fine. I'm saying I love you despite that. I love you even when you're in this situation that you're in right now. So let's be real. You City Family Church, right? We know we're messed up, right? We know. I mean, that's what makes us Christians. What makes us Christians is our ability to affirm the fact that we're messed up. If we don't do that, we don't, that is a qualification to, to actively continuing to follow Christ is you have to be willing at some point to say, I'm messed up. I need some help. I am in need. I have some problems. If you are without sin and you haven't sinned in the last seven days, man, this might not be the right church for you because this is a, this is a place for sinners. And it's a place for people who are willing and able to admit that they need help. In fact, your ability to follow Jesus, your ability to follow him, is contingent upon your willingness to admit your need. 
If you cannot admit need, it's impossible to follow Jesus. That's what separated the Pharisees from the publicans and the sinners. The sinners were able to go, yeah, I'm messed up. I'm a sinner. The Pharisees were not able to do that. The Pharisees were saying, I'm above sin. Remember the show Intervention? Ever, anybody ever see that on A&E? It's like, it was a show. I don't think it's on anymore, but it was this moment. It, would, it was a show where there would be like somebody who was addicted to drugs or alcohol, and their friends and family would all get together in a room with a psychologist or a, or a therapist or something, and then they would bring the person that was addicted, um, and they didn't, this person wouldn't know what was going on. They think, think they're coming to a dinner or something, and they come into a room, and then all their family and friends are sitting around, and they're having an intervention, and they're basically saying, hey, you know, you're messed up, and we love you, and we want to we wanna help you. We're going to come around you, but you gotta, you got you to gotta be willing to allow us to help you, right? And there was always a moment in that show, like every single show, there was a moment in the show where the person who had been brought in, the person with the addiction, would either say, yeah, you're right. They would break, and they would say, you're right. I need help. I need help. I can't do this. Or they would say, you guys are all screwed up. Forget you. I'm out of here. And they would bail. And that decision would determine whether they start on a path of recovery or whether they continue in their addiction. And Jesus is saying, look, all I'm asking is for you to be able to admit that, yet yeah, you don't have it all figured out on your own. You cannot do it all on your own. I can tell you this. The greatest day in my own life was the day that I admitted I needed some help. Because that set me on a path to finding God and, and, and God getting into my heart and into my life in ways that I could never have imagined. You know, when I was able to say, look, all right, maybe I can't pull it all off on my own. Maybe I can't do all this on my own. That's the moment when we become real followers of Jesus. So, so he says this to the Pharisees. He's like, I don't, I'm not here, right, to help you. I'm here to help these sick guys that I'm hanging out with. And then he rubs a little salt in the wounds because these guys are religious experts. These are scholars. And Jesus says, oh, yeah, and by the way, go learn something. Go learn what this means, okay? And he quotes Hosea, the, the prophet Hosea. He says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Go figure out what that means, guys. And what that means is, like, Jesus doesn't want your rites and your rituals and your, you know, your obligations. and your, he, he, that's, that's not impressive to him. He wants your heart. He wants your willingness to say, okay, I need you. I want to have a relationship with you. I'm not in the circles of acceptability trying to figure out which one to dance over and which compartment to live out of. I'm trying to have a relationship with you. I'm trying to, you know, have mercy and love and accept your love and mercy in my life. So Jesus says, go figure. This is, this is like if you go to the doctor and you say to the doctor, hey, why don't you go bone up on your biology books, doc? Right? I mean, these guys are totally ticked off at this point. And then he rubs it and he says, for I have not come to call the righteous, but I've come to call sinners. I've come to call the people who are struggling. I'm, I've come to call the people who need help. What if we become that community in St. Louis? What if we become the community where people who are struggling and are hurting come and they say, man, I feel comfortable here. I don't know if I believe what these guys believe. I'm, I don't know if I'm ready to, to do the things that they're doing. I don't know if I'm going to get baptized. Or, I don't know, but I, there's something here. And I want to be here because there's something about what they're doing and they love me and they accept me. Have you ever been loved or accepted by somebody who completely knows you? Like that's the greatest liberation you'll ever experience. Somebody who knows your deepest, darkest secrets and they go, yeah, I know that and I still love you. That's what Jesus is offering. He's saying, look, I know all your stuff. I got your stuff. I know your stuff and I love you. I want you to be on my team. Here's Jesus' leadership model. The religious leadership model is change and you can join us. 
change, and you can join us. Jesus' leadership model is join us, and you'll change. Just join us. Hang out with us. Hang around with us. See what happens in your life if you hang around with us long enough. And that's what I think some of you are experiencing even today. There's an attraction about this church or another church where, you know, you go, look, I, I just don't, I like, I want my kids here. I'm not sure that I'm all the way in, but there's something important here, right? Start to follow Jesus wherever you are. Three takeaways, and I'm going to wrap this up. Number one, being a sinner doesn't disqualify you. It's a prerequisite. You can, you actually cannot be a follower of Jesus if you cannot admit that you're a sinner. There's no sin. No sin. There's zero. There's no sin or no habit or no problem or no issue or no proclivity or no anything in your life that prohibits you from becoming a follower of Jesus. All right? Nothing. Number two, being an unbeliever doesn't disqualify you from starting to follow Jesus. None of Jesus' earliest followers were believers. Matthew was not a believer when he started following Jesus. Jesus' own disciples Years followed the guy, Jesus, and they didn't believe. They had spotty moments of belief, then they would not believe, and Jesus is always saying, hey, you guys are not believing, right? In fact, Thomas, after Jesus died, what do we call him? Doubting Thomas, right? We didn't make that up. It's because after he had traveled with Jesus for three years, heard everything that he'd done, seen all the miracles, saw him die, and sat back and went, you know, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not totally convinced could be smoke and mirrors. I'm not sure, right? So if you're sitting there today going, I can't be a follower of Jesus because I don't affirm the, you know, the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed or I haven't done X, Y, and Z, I haven't, right? Jesus says, I want you to follow me from right where you are. I dare you, if you are not a follower of Jesus, read the Gospel of Matthew. Just read it. Read it in a translation that's not all you know, Elizabethan English, unless you're a, a, an English major, all right? But find, find a translation that you can read and read it and then just see, is there something in there that I can follow? Because I am proposing to you today that Jesus is the greatest spiritual leader of all time and he is inviting you to follow him no matter where you're at, no matter where you are at. And number three, following requires me to focus on where I am rather than on where you are not, Right? following requires me to think about where I'm going. And, and then I'm not looking at you saying, well, you know what? You, you haven't, you're not in this circle of acceptability, right? It, it, if you're a, I used to, before I was a pastor, I would listen to other pastors preach, and I would think, man, that guy's not that good. I can preach way better than that guy, right? Then I started preaching. I'm like, actually, that guy's pretty good, actually, you know? Because now I'm, I'm trying to focus on where I'm going, and I'm not sitting there judging people about where they are, Right? I used to have a motorcycle, and one of the best things that anybody ever taught me about a motorcycle was when you're on a motorcycle, you need to look to where you want to go. Don't be looking at other people on other motorcycles and other cars, because if you do, you might just slide right off the cliff. You need to be looking to where you're going, right? And that's what Jesus is saying. If you're following me, you're not worried about what the other guy is doing, right? You're not sitting there judging like the Pharisees. Pharisees are outside of the party going, hmm, 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 right? Jesus is saying, follow me. So the question, uh, the, the, the call from Jesus is this. Jesus has a universal call to follow him. It's not the, it's not the circles of acceptability. There are no circles of acceptability when, when it comes to fo- beginning to follow Jesus. 
If you're way out here in the unthinkable zone and Jesus is saying, follow me, and you start to follow him, that's what matters. If you're right here, right, you know, you're, you're a Pharisee, you're like right there, you're doing all the same stuff he's doing, but you're not following him, you, don't, you can't admit you have need and you're walking away, then you're not following him. So the question I ask for me and for you and for our church, am I following? Am I following Jesus? This is a massive paradigm shift that Jesus brought when he came and preached. And it was a paradigm shift that we keep losing every generation. We keep forgetting it. And Jesus is saying, I don't care where you're at. I want you to start following me right here, right now, right? Join me and you will change. Not change so you can join me. Join me and you will change. Let's be followers of Jesus. And when we become followers of Jesus, we become leaders of others. We become leaders to bring them to Jesus. Today, as I close, I want to introduce to you five followers of Jesus who I've spent a great deal of time with over the past several months. Uh, These are a group of men that have Uh, committed a great deal of time in prayer and study and conversation. Uh, Today we are going to present and install our U-City Family Church elders. I would invite you guys to come up now. Claude Bennett, Glenn Herr, Jason Fry, David Cloud, and Greg Cosby. Come right on up here, guys. I love these guys, man. I love these guys. Even you, Jason. I love you, man. Um, we, several months ago, uh, our congregation nominated our, our elders. Um, and we went through a very rigorous process. A lot of people were nominated. Some people were unavailable or couldn't do it at this time. Uh, we spent a lot of time in prayer. We spent a lot of time you know, reading and doing assessments. These guys have done more assessments than, you know, you want to shake a stick at. And they're like, we're done with the assessments. Um, We spent one-on-one time together. We spent time with their spouses. Uh, And as part of our church structure, we, we, we invite uh, men that are repentant and they have, they have repentant hearts. Their hearts have demonstrated true character, uh, Christ character, uh, a, a focus on ministry, a focus on love, a focus on mercy, not haughty, uh, but humble, loving man of God to come and help lead our congregation in teaching and preaching and prayer and counsel and mediation and all of these spiritual um, practices that we need as a church, especially as we are growing. And so I am extremely thankful for these guys. In fact, after we install them, I'm going on a six-month sabbatical, and I'll just check you guys next. No, I'm just kidding. Um, let me just introduce them to you. Jason Fry uh, is, is just an awesome guy. He has been studying. Yeah. He has spent a lot of time studying uh, the Bible. He went to Bible school, and he's got a couple degrees in theology, and he just he's a really, really bright guy, and he's very serious about it, and not just sort of academically, but in application. Uh, he and his wife spent about four years in, or how, how many years in India? A little over four years in India, working with Hindus who were seeking to be followers of Jesus. And, um, and, and, and they worked there in that environment for many years, and <laughs> you're getting emo- are you getting emotional? Yeah. yeah, I could see his eyes starting to well up, so that's going to mess me up. Let me just look. I'll just look over at the light. Um, but, but, but these guys, you know, Jason has a heart 
for people who don't know Jesus. And he has a heart to reach them and bring them into the love of Christ. And Claude Bennett, many of you guys know Claude. Yes. Claude is the head of our prayer team. He also has headed a ministry for several years called Heaven on Earth Ministry, and they do um, intercessory prayer. They actually teach people how to pray and intercede, and they have classes, and they just do an amazing job. He's got an incredible heart, um, not only for our congregation, but for the region uh, around here. And also, he's a, he's a kingdom guy. He's like, you know, we need to all be working towards the kingdom and building the kingdom of God. And so just his heart for this congregation, his heart for you. He'll call me and be like, hey, I haven't seen so-and-so for a while. Do you know if they're doing okay? I mean, he's got a heart, you know, for the people in this congregation. And I'm so excited that he's stepping in as an elder in our congregation. Thank you, man. And then Glenn Herr. Um, Glenn is sort of behind the scenes. A lot of you don't know Glenn, but Glenn and his wife spent uh, over 30 years in Hong Kong as missionaries, teaching and preaching the gospel to people who didn't know the gospel. Uh, he has an incredible heart of service and humility. He's on the setup team, y'all. He is setting up the church on Sunday mornings. You want to talk about a servant's heart? We have a, we have a we have a servant leadership model here. That means when you become a leader. You haven't, you haven't accepted a post of, you know, nah, you know, you're going to do what I say. You've accepted a post of service. You've accepted a post of humility. And, and, and Glenn exemplifies that, and he's a great uh, Bible teacher and has a, um, a life group, and we're just so grateful for the ministry that he does. So thank you, Glenn. Love you, man. And then, and then Greg Cosby. Many of you know Greg. Greg has devoted his entire life to educating young people. He's been a teacher. He's been a principal. Uh, he's worked in churches and schools uh, to bring the gospel to people, to, to build their character, to build their minds. His whole life has been devoted to that. And, and, and Greg is a, is a quiet guy and is sort of behind the scenes. It doesn't make a big splash. But his heart and his love for you and for this congregation is deep. And I tell you what, every once in a while, if you get Greg in the right environment, man, he is a hoot, man. I mean... We went, we went, when I first met Greg, I was like, this guy's serious. And then we went on a ropes course with a bunch of men. And he's like, Whoa! and he's like going down the zip line. Um, <laughs> sorry, man, that was not, not necessary, but, but he, awesome man of God, loves God. You know, he's basically, how many kids do you guys have? 11. I was going to say 22, but man, it's a, it's a lot. Um, so if you've raised 11 kids, you know, you got something going on. You got it together. Love you, brother. And then David Cloud, man, I love this guy. David Cloud. David Cloud has got a, 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 an incredible sort of down-to-earth perspective about what it means to be a follower of Jesus and what it means to lead others to Jesus. And you want to talk about a guy who can see it from just like the beginning, like ground zero. Uh, David Cloud, the, the, the thing that got me about David early on was at a, at a prayer event, like, I don't know, two summers ago, um, David started describing his, uh, his conversion. And, and, and he, had, you know, he, he, was, he was out on the road with all these musicians. There's pictures of David. I should have got one for the screen. His hair is like down to here. He's like hanging with the Almond Brothers, just like kicking it like this. Um, <laughs> Certain things are supposed to remain confidential. I keep forgetting that. Darn it. Um, no, I'm just kidding. And David described his conversion as like he, he was sort of, 
you know, not a believer, and then suddenly he was, you know, presented with the gospel. He said it was like a little pinprick of light. There's a little tiny pinprick of light. He said, like, if you have a, a, a black piece of paper over a window, and there's just a little pinprick and a needle, and, you know, and just a little beam of light starts to come through. And he said he started following and pursuing, and that light just got bigger and bigger, and, and the love of Christ sa- soaked his life and saturated his life, changed his life, transformed him into the man of God that he is today. And he loves this congregation. He's serving in ways that you don't even know, ways that I can't even tell you. He's, he's serving in, in, in ways that are just powerful and deep and are affecting people uh, in ways that you know are just tremendously powerful and demonstrate his love for God. So I love you, man. Thank you, bro. So these are, these are our elders. Guys, why don't you all step a little closer? And I'm going to invite, <laughs> be careful now. Um, I'm going to invite, I'm gonna invite uh, some of our other leaders. I'm, I would, I'd like our trustees and our team leaders and our staff members to come up and, and surround these guys around the back. Come on up here and come around behind them. Our trustees, all of our team leaders, and our, um, our staff. Some of our staff and team leaders are out. Um, outside. But we're going to pray for these guys and we're going to install them and present them as elders today. And this is a practice that has been going on for, you know, 2,000 years. Everybody be careful or we'll have to have the trustees start uh, figuring something out. Come on up around here. So for the last 2,000 years, this is how churches have operated. Come on, Mother Ray. And they've established, they've established spiritual leaders who are here for prayer, for counseling, for teaching, for preaching, for mediation, uh, for shepherding, for providing this sort of spiritual leadership to the congregation. Uh, and these are people who live lives of maturity and repentance. Um, and uh, that's what these guys represent. I'm going to just read you the, 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 the passage from Titus. The Apostle Paul wrote Titus as a pastoral epistle, and he said this. He said, The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. And that is what these guys are. These guys pass that test, and we are honored to have them. So I'm going to read a vow, and I'm going to ask you guys to to answer me, I do, in just a moment. To our elders, do you promise to be zealous and faithful in promoting the truths of the gospel and the purity and peace of the church? Whatever opposition may arise to you on that account, will you be faithful and diligent in the exercise of all your duties as elder, whether private or public? And will you endeavor by the grace of God to adorn the profession of the gospel in your manner of life and to walk with exemplary character before this congregation? Elders, if so, say, I do. Do you now take personal responsibility in the life of this congregation as an elder to humbly serve this congregation with love and mercy, to help lead the church and to devote yourself to prayer, the ministry of the word, the teaching of the gospel, wise and thoughtful counsel, mentoring, discipling, evangelizing, and the shepherding of God's flock, relying upon the grace of God that his church may flourish, prosper, and grow as befits the bride of Christ? If so, say, I do. I'm going to ask you, congregation, to the members of U City Family Church, 
Do you, the members of U City Family Church, acknowledge and publicly receive these men as elders, as gifts of Christ to this church? Will you love them and pray for them in their ministry and work together with them humbly and cheerfully that by the grace of God we may accomplish the mission of the church, giving them all due honor and support in their leadership to which the Lord has called them to the glory and honor of God? If so, congregation, say, I do. Why don't you all just stretch your hand out towards these guys, and we're going to pray. And if you guys behind would stretch your hands out and put your hand, lay your hand on your shoulder, let's all pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you today. We ask that your spirit descend upon these men, that you fulfill the appointment that you have laid upon their hearts, that each one of these men, Lord God, would live out the call of their life that they would walk in humility before you. They would walk in grace before you. They would walk in submission before you as we all endeavor to serve and lead our community, to bring the love of Christ and the power of Christ to the people in our community, that we as a team, Lord, would be able to lead and serve and grow and, and, and benefit the people who are coming with brokenness in their heart, with broken relationships, with broken finances, with broken jobs, with broken dreams, with grief in their heart, people who are morning. We pray, Lord God, that you would use us to bring beauty for ashes, to bring joy for mourning, to bring praise for the spirit of heaviness, that the people you bring to us might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that you might be glorified, that we might bring strength, Lord God, that we might bring hope, that we might bring peace, love, and empowerment into the people that we touch. Father, bless these men. Help them to overcome any obstacles that may stand in their way. Help them to humbly serve and lead your people. Father, we give you praise. We honor you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I now am humbled, honored, and proud to present to you the very first elders of U City Family Church. Thank you, guys. You guys can all go down. Somebody love Mother Ray. I love Mother Ray. Mother Ray is our baptism team leader. So she's going to be working overtime in a few weeks at the end of the Easter series. We're going to have a big baptism Sunday. So those of you who want to get baptized, haven't gotten baptized, you're going to be able to do that on Sunday uh, at the end of our Easter series. Amen, guys. Has this been refreshing?